you take your Bibles and make your way to Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. Mark 6, we've been in Mark. And even though Mark's favorite word is immediately, um, it's a quick telling, retelling of the history of Jesus. Um, we're we're kind of taking it slow. Even though Mark is fast, we're not. <laughs> um, so Mark chapter 6, we're actually going to begin in verse 45. I'm going to read it first through verse 52. Here we go. Immediately, there's his word, right? Immediately, he, that's Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was along on the land. And he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. It was about the fourth watch of the night. He came to them walking on the sea, and would have passed by them. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, look at his message, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And he went up into the boat to them, and look what happens. And the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Now, here's why they marveled. Check it out, verse 52. Because they had not understood about the loaves. Why didn't they understand? Because their heart was hardened. Um, can any of you relate to this? I know when I, my journey with, with King Jesus began, it was a little bit of a messy experience. Anybody relate to that? Um, there were some habits and practices and indulgences that I had let into my life that very much contradicted life in Jesus. I think we can relate to that. And I don't know about you, but for me, obedience came hard, especially in some specific areas. I guess I thought erroneously that it would be like just flipping on a switch and on comes the light right and the light of revelation comes and all that sin stuff is just dealt with for me it was more like turning on a strobe light <laughs> right there was there was flashes of light and then darkness and then flashes of light I don't know if you've ever been in a room that's dark with a strobe light it it's actually dizzying and that's how I would describe my my walk in my early years with Christ, it was kind of dizzying. It was, it was hit and miss. And, and I'd have some good moments, and then I would do some stupid things, and I would stay in that almost uh, spiritual stupor for a while. I'd stay in that dark way too long. Anybody can relate to that today? And then as we grow in the Lord, and as we grow up a little bit, even, even just over time, I was 15 when Christ saved me, um, you start to get a handle on some things, right? Some of those things, by God's grace, you begin to understand. And, and the battle is not what it used to be. You start getting more consistent victory. You learn. You grow up into the Lord, right? And, and we're thankful for those times. 
And it's here that you come to realize your great need of help, your need of aid, your need of empowerment, if you're ever really going to obey. There's always more to learn, right? And I remember specifically different chapters of my life where you think, man, I'm doing pretty good. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit helps you to realize you're doing pretty prideful. <laughs> Anyone ever been there? You think you're really nailing it? And then you find it's the closer that you walk with God. Here's what happens is the more aware of your sin that you are. Has anybody ever experienced that in your life? The more obedient you are, the more obedient you want to be, and you realize how disobedient you are in these other areas, listen, that never came on your radar before. Why is that? I would assert it's the Holy Spirit. As we, the closer we walk with Christ, the more the light of Christ reveals what does not please him in our life. And that's not just the sins of commission, the stuff that we do. It's the sins of omission, the stuff we should be doing but aren't. Am I, making, am I, am I plowing in your pea patch today? Because I sure am mine. Let me give you the context of, of today's teaching. And if you recall, I know it's been two weeks. But what happened just before? What has just happened? What did Jesus just do? That's right, Tom. The feeding of the 5,000, which was a massive, it was a deity miracle. Only God could pull that off. And it basically took a little boy's happy meal and with, with a, a few loaves and a couple of smoked sardines fed 5,000 men plus their wives and children, probably closer to 15,000 people. The entire hillside was covered and 12 basketfuls left over. Um, do you remember what they had come to that side of the lake to do? Rest. Did they get to do any resting? Not a bit. You know, we kind of laugh at that, but these guys, I mean, Jesus and these men, they're exhausted. What, what had the men just come back from doing? Their first missions trip, they, they went, Jesus, Jesus trained the guys and sends them out to preach the kingdom gospel. Repent, believe, follow Jesus, right? Follow the kingdom. Messiah is here. Repent, believe, and follow. And he gave them power over demons and power over sickness. So they use, they use the miraculous to, to verify the message just like they had seen Jesus do. And they were very successful. And they were so happy. But what had happened to Jesus right before they got back? He got the news. Do you remember that his cousin and one of his best friends, John the Baptist, had been beheaded? And so Jesus is grieving but his men come back rejoicing. It had to be an awkward time. And so Jesus says, you know what, guys? They're starting to gather again. We need to go get away and rest. So they go to the other side of the lake. And um, when they get over there, the people had followed them. And Jesus teaches all day. And he feeds the 5,000 when there's nothing to eat. And, and, and remember, the guys had just come off a very successful gospel mission trip and they alert Jesus hey we got a physical problem here these people got to eat it's getting late and you need to send them away to go get food and what did Jesus say how about you give them something to eat right and they're thinking this in the physical all the time and, and, and basically say Jesus just do the math on that 
that's eight months of wages, number one. Number two, we'd have to go find that food, even if we had the money, which we don't, and buy it, and then lug it back. This is impossible. And we learned a lesson. They learned a lesson. They just come off a great success, and now Jesus was showing them their inadequacy, right? They weren't seeing yet. And Jesus said, don't tell me what we don't have, guys. Tell me what we do. We got a little boy's lunch. Good, bring it to me and let's pray. And he feeds the 5,000. So that's kind of where we are right now. Um, there was great excitement. Can you imagine after that? Can you imagine being, being a guy with your family sitting out there hearing, hearing this man teach and then watch him take a boy, little boy's lunch and feed everybody to the point that you're so full there's leftovers? You know who they knew who that was. He proved who he was, and they were excited. And, and John's gospel tells us they were going to forcibly crown him as king right there on that hillside. But Jesus knows better. The disciples in the crowd still, listen to this, they're still not truly understanding who Jesus is. And that's the problem. That's Mark's whole gospel. How does he open in Mark 1.1? 1, 1? What does he say? In the, in the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Guess what? They figured out who Jesus was by the end of it. Here, they're still somewhat clueless. Now the crowds are figuring out who he is, that his deity. And here's the problem. Listen, they had a role in mind for Jesus. But what they did not have in mind was a redeeming relationship. They wanted an earthly king. They wanted a politician. And he was coming as a propitiation, not a politician. They wanted someone to uh, overcome their political enemies. Jesus came to overcome their sin. And Jesus knows exactly what to do. He sends his guys back to the other side of the lake. He dismisses the crowd, and he climbs the mountain to do what? Pray. Isn't that interesting? He knows what he's doing. Now, Mark does not focus on the prayer life of Jesus. All the others, uh, Matthew, Luke, and John, you see Jesus praying often in there. Only three times does Mark record uh, Jesus praying. The first time... Um, was a, after a period of early success in Galilee when alone with the Father, Jesus was refreshed in the real mission of preaching as opposed to healing. We see that jotted down in, in chapter 1 and verse 35. The third and last time Mark mentions Jesus praying is in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he goes to the cross to fulfill his mission, and that's in Mark 14, 32 to 42. And second is this right here. It's the middle episode of prayer. And it's right here, after he, just after he fed the 5,000. I believe this moment of prayer, like the other two, had to do with his mission. On the mountain, he was reminded that the nature of his kingdom was spiritual and not physical. They were wanting to physically crown him king right there and start the civil war. 
that would over or the revolution that would overthrow Rome. And they were going to do it. But Jesus knew better. It was not an external kingdom. It was an internal one that would have external results, wouldn't it? But he knew what they needed was an internal kingdom in order to affect the external kingdom. He knew that he, he had come to die as a sacrifice to bring that about. So listen to this. He had to dismiss the crowd in order to save the crowd. Think about that for a minute. He had to send them away in order to save them. Because they were wanting a role and not a relationship. So the question today is, how do we obey our king well? And I think we see it kind of unfolding in this, in this little passage. The first thing I want you to see is, is uh, the disciples, their departure in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go to the other side. Uh, before him, go to the other side to Bethsaida. Well, he dismissed the crowd. So, so he does not give them a choice, does he? Um, why do you think he did that? Why would he send, because it's a pretty good little trip, right? Um, and Jesus is out there by himself. He's got to find his own way back. Do you imagine it was confusing to the disciples? Why, why do you want us to leave without you, right? Here's what I think. This is just me. I think Jesus was protecting them. I think Jesus was protecting. He didn't want them to get caught up in the carnal movement of the crowd who was going to try to make him a political figure and a king right there and start a revolution. He probably knew that his guys would have signed up for that, right? And so what does he do? In his kindness, he sends his guys away ahead of him. Um, John's gospel, jot it down, John 6.15 is where it tells us that they wanted to forcibly take him by force and make him king. See, those disciples needed to see Jesus for who he truly was, the Messiah, as, as Mark says, the Son of God. And you know what? That's the need of the day today. You and I need the same thing. I, I, I want to ask you, do you know him today? I, didn't, I don't mean do you know about Jesus. I mean do you know him personally in a relational way? And is he affecting your life choices? Is he affecting your obedience? Is he creating a desire for you to obey internally? That's, that's the question of the day. Do you know the real Jesus? And do you truly know him? And maybe more importantly, does he know you? Because we see in Scripture that at the end of time, many will stand before him and say, Lord, Lord. And they'll list all the things they did for him. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So the disciples, I want you to see, they obeyed. Jesus in the sending away. They did what he said. But number two, I want you to see their distress. It doesn't necessarily go well. He sends a multitude away. He dismisses them. And this is interesting. And he departed to the mountain to pray. Now you got to remember, Jesus is exhausted too. So are the disciples. They're worn out. They go in the boat. Jesus climbs the mountain. Now it's not a mountain like we think of, but it is a it is a high hill. He goes up to that mountain somewhere up there to pray and to refresh himself with the Father and to get a perspective about what he's come for, what he has come to do. 
And the first thing that the disciples run into in their distress is the storm. We see it right here. Um, he's up there praying. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea. So it's about an 8 to 10 mile journey uh, across, and they're in the middle. The Bible says, and he was alone on the land, just Jesus. Everybody had left. And then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now it was about the fourth hour of the night. So here they are again. They're in the middle of the sea. The wind is kicking up again. And it's so bad that they got the oars out. Now they have sails, but, but in, a, in a storm, those sails will hurt you, not help you. And so, and apparently the wind was against them, so the sails would have just driven them backwards. So they're on the, ro they're on the oars, and they're, they're, they're pulling for all their might, and they're not getting anywhere. And I think this is on purpose. Where would these guys have been most comfortable and most self-confident? In the ocean, in, in, on the Sea of Galilee, right? They were, half of them were fishermen. They, they were doing that since they could walk. You know, say, finally, Jesus gave us something we can do. We couldn't feed those people, couldn't figure that one out. But this we can figure. And they get out there in the middle of that lake, and even what they used to be good at, they're not. They'd been in storms before. They had a lot of self-confidence. We got out of them before. We'll get out of them again. But, but look, here's the, here's the lesson there. They had to learn how hard obedience is in their own strength. And so do you. How hard is it to obey when you're just gutting it out trying to do it on your own? I would assert, in my experience, it's pretty much impossible. Right? Because it's, it's like that razor's edge. As soon as you get one thing right, you slipped over into sin on this side. Right? The priceless, it's like impossible. You can't do this on your own. And the disciples were needing to learn that. But notice, once Jesus got into the boat, they were easily able to get to their destination. What's the difference? Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up and when Jesus gets in, all of a sudden this obedience makes sense and is possible. And it's no longer anything the disciples are doing. Listen, instead it's someone they have invited into their situation. And maybe that's the key to our obedience today. What are those hard things that, that are, are keeping us from obeying what God wants us to do? Maybe we need to invite him into our life. Invite him right into the middle of that situation and then trust him for the outcome. Reminds me of that song, that old gospel song. I can, I can still hear Brother Clement singing it. I can't even walk without you holding my hand. Angie, you remember him? Nobody sings it like, like Pastor Clement. Uh, it's true. We, we can't even walk without God. So there was the storm, and, and you think that was bad enough. It gets worse. Now there's this, this strange sight is going to be a dilemma to them. Um, the Bible says, and when he, or excuse me, verse 48, and he saw them straining rowing, for the wind was against them. That was about the fourth watch of the night. By the way, that, that's between 3 and 6 a.m. All right? So middle of the night or morning, still dark. I'm assuming he saw them probably by moonlight. Um, as he was up on the side of that hill, he could see out over the lake. Um, about the fourth hour of the night. Now look at this. He came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and they cried out. 
For they all saw him and were, what's that word? Troubled or afraid. Yeah, terrified, right? Now, it's so easy to point a finger at these disciples, isn't it? I mean, it's not even hard work. But you think about it. You're out, you're, first of all, you're doing the best you can and you're getting nowhere, right? And then all of a sudden in the, in the dappled moonlight, here is this figure coming towards you as if it was walking on top of the What do you think? Now, they didn't, have the, they didn't have the ability to read the rest of the story like you and I are doing right now. I mean, people don't walk on water unless it's February in Connecticut. I did a lot of water walking in February in Connecticut on our lake. But uh, not, not when there was no ice, right? So it's a strange thing that Jesus is here walking on the water. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting that he chose to do this. And, and he's already done some pretty big deity miracles. Remember, on the way over, he calms the sea. The wind and the waves settle right down, right? They've already had that experience. Um, now he's made abundance out of scarcity with a little boy's lunch and fed upwards of 15,000 people. And think about it. How many basketfuls were left over? Here's how I picture it. I think these guys are in that boat straining on those oars. And guess what's sitting right around them? Twelve basketfuls of, of fish and bread. They still don't get it. Because all they can see is what's right in front of them. And so here comes Jesus. And they're scared to death. And, and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I would be too. I would be too. I remember one time when I was working security in Boston when I was in college, um, um, we were in this, I still don't know what they did, but it was pretty, pretty um, secretive, something with the government. But we had, to, we had to go around this building three times a night, a big building, took a long time, we had to do a tour. And, uh, I came and, and we had had a call that uh, some alarm had gone off a motion sensor outside. Uh, oh boy, so my, my sergeant said, go ahead and do that round now. So I'm a little nervous, right? And I come around the corner, and um, nervous now, of course you hear things that really aren't there. I come around the corner, and uh, I see somebody looking at me. And so I did the only thing I could think of, and I pulled my nightstick out, and he pulled a nightstick out. I'm like, oh my word, we're going we're gonna to have a throw down here. Then I realized he looks a lot like me. <laughs> and what I was actually looking at is there was the head of gym area, and it was all solid glass wall, and in the low light, it was my reflection. And I nearly broke that glass up. But it's, I'm going to tell you, I could, my hair stand up in the back of my neck right now. That's exactly, y'all know what that feeling is like? It's like, it's kind of creepy, right? They were scared to death when they saw Jesus coming. It terrified them. But I want you to see this last one, their deliverance. We see it in verse 50. Um, they saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them. Look at this, and the wind ceased. He doesn't even speak to the wind. He just gets in the boat and the wind stops. 
and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marvel. That's pretty interesting. So here's what's going on. If Jesus knows that these disciples need to get a clear understanding of exactly who he is, which they get. That's how Mark opens his gospel. But this was another step in getting Jesus right for these men. They didn't know. They didn't have Jesus right yet. Even after two years. They, they still didn't really understand his identity. Um, again, it's between three and six in the morning. Jesus sees them on the mountain. And everything in this account hints that this is a moment where the disciples are interacting with the divine. They are, they are going to come to realize who this is. How? First of all, he's going to do things that only God can do. He's already done it in feeding the 5,000, but now he's walking on the sea. This defies the natural order in a very significant way. And they know it. It's, it's a miracle that only God could perform. The one who parted the Red Sea, the one who parted the Jordan River, now walks on top of the Sea of Galilee. Second, walking on water and passing by his followers. That was an interesting comment there. Um, he, he, can you imagine this? They're straining and they see this apparition and, it, and, it's, and it's, it's walking got to be some distance away from them and like it's going to keep on like he's going to keep on walking going to pass them by well that's what God did in the Old Testament book of Job jot this down Job 9 verses 8 and 11 God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves on the sea behold he passes by me and I see him not he moves on but I do not perceive him third this is interesting when Jesus spoke to them and he said, fear not, it is I. Here's how it translates into Greek. It simply translates, fear not, I am. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, I am is the title that God used of himself when speaking to Moses. When Moses says, who am I going to tell these Israelites sent me? And he, God says, you tell them I am that I am has sent you. It's a name for God. And they, believe me, that was not lost on those disciples in that boat. Fear not, I am is here. God is here. Fourth, Jesus told them, don't be afraid. He was there. This is the kind of language the whole Bible uses to describe God. When God is there, fear is gone. Jesus says, don't be afraid, I am here. Now let me put a pin in that for a second. That preach is really good, but how do we live that out? How do we live that out? Fear, would you agree with me, is a very real thing? Right, Ben? Fear is very real. And, and I can tell you uh, 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 from experience, I'll talk to the parents out there today. It's very easy to parent out of fear. And I just want to ask you a question with a couple of minor exceptions. When's the last time you made a decision in the middle, motivated by fear, that worked out good? Unless you're running from a bear. That's a good thing. All right? I'm taking some of the, my boys up to the mountains after church today, and uh, 
they, they do have a bear issue and we're sleeping outdoors. So Jack was wondering about that. And I said, well, you can run faster than dad, so you're good. <laughs> right? But when's the last time you made a decision based on fear that, that ended up being good? Right? So Jesus tells them, don't be afraid. Now here's an interesting thought, and I wanted to share this with you. And this is number five. The, this whole episode is the gospel message in miniature. And I'm going to show you how. I think this is interesting. Think about this. The bread. The bread is full and abundant where? On the shore. Right? Tons of bread. The disciples head out. A storm comes. Jesus sees their tragedy. And he descends from a high place to save them. He did what they could not do by walking on the water and calming the storm. That's the gospel. You say, Pastor Paul, how's that the gospel? Look, look at this. The garden was abundant. Had everything man could want. God's people tried to live in obedience on their own, but they failed. They blew it. The, the storm of the curse came. And it came quick, didn't it? And they were overwhelmed by it. And God descended to us in Jesus. He did what we could not do by living a perfect life and dying for us so that we could avoid the storm of God's wrath. And all we need to do is invite him into our boat. Does that sound like the gospel to you? He is reenacting something that they were preaching. But there's one last way. Number six. This passage points to Jesus' divinity. Notice how it says that he, was, he, was, he pretended or acted like he was going to pass them by in verse 48. It almost sounds funny that Jesus was doing this. And it makes you, is he playing games with them? That doesn't sound like Jesus. But what does Mark mean by including this element in his history? Well, scholars have many thoughts about this. Most of them are uneducated guesses, to be honest with you. But in light of everything I just pointed out, could this also be a hint at the divine nature of Jesus? Because that's Mark's purpose. That's Mark's purpose. How does this point to Jesus? Do you remember the time in Exodus 33:22 when Moses says, look, all I need, God, is to see you. What's the problem with that? No man can see God at any time and what? Live. Remember what God did? Puts him in the cleft of a rock and covers him up. And God, God does what? God passes by him and lets him see the back of God. I think Jesus is borrowing from history. 1 Kings 19.11. He also passed by Elijah when he was on Mount Horeb. And here's the point. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than than Elijah. God did not pass by Jesus as he had for those figureheads. But Jesus passed by his men. Why? He, he is imitating God because he is God. And I'm going to tell you, we have a wrong idea about these men. They were very discipled. They would have known every one of these references and been very familiar with them. And it would not have been lost on them. This, and this was not the first time the disciples struggled at night on the lake. Remember the last time when Jesus was asleep in the stern. That night, 
After Jesus calmed the wind and the wave, what did they say? They asked, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? But listen, listen, that question never got answered. Isn't that interesting? Mark never records an answer to that question until now. It took this for them to get that answer. On this night, Jesus answers their question. It is I, or here it is. Who is this? I am. That is the name for Jehovah God. I am. Again, this was a clear statement of the deity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It was a way for Jesus to answer their question by saying, I am God. I am divine. I just fed 15,000. I just walked on the water. And now I am is getting into the boat with you. And watch what happens when I show up. Wind stops. I am with you. I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. And we've got to be reminded. Don't we need to be reminded of that today? How many of you ever felt like God has forsaken you? We all have if you're being honest. We struggle for obedience because we're trying to do it on our own. The flesh is never going to obey. Only the spirit. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, Paul says in Romans 7 and 22. The spirit has no problem with obedience. We need help. Here's the help that we need. It starts with knowing who Jesus is. And it's taken two years for the disciples to get that question answered. But brothers and sisters, it got answered, listen to me, the minute Jesus stepped into their struggle. And yes, I think Jesus kind of set them up. He kind of set them up at supper. And he sets them up in the middle of that lake. But for good reason. So they could discover who he really is. And to know that when he is there, fear is unnecessary and it dissipates. Isn't that true? I remember many years ago when I was living in Boston, um, I got my paycheck and my brother-in-law, he wasn't my brother-in-law at the time, I, I was just dating Elizabeth, but my brother-in-law Cliff was a big guy, kind of like Mike Glaze, big, strong shoulders, tall fella. And uh, we had to go uh, cash our checks. So Cliff and I went downtown and we cashed our checks and there was a shortcut through an alley. Bad idea, I know. And, and so we go into this dark alley and this group of, of uh, suspect looking fellas started walking towards us, right? And I was getting a little bit nervous until I realized who was standing with me. And then I felt pretty confident that we were going to come through. And it was so cool. When we got to those guys, they split like the Red Sea. And Cliff and I walked right through them. <laughs> right? I wasn't afraid when, when Cliff was with me. Uh, at a minimum, I knew I could run faster than him. But also, I knew his presence and his size. You know, they, they were going to have to really think twice before taking him on. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. God is afraid of nobody. God is afraid of nobody. We need to invite him into our context today. In our struggle for obedience, we've got to remember who we're dealing with. Jesus is truly man and truly God. He became one of us, but he also created us. And if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, knowing his identity, this is my whole point today, so don't miss it. Knowing his identity is a powerful aid in our struggle for obedience. 
Knowing who Jesus is is one of the most powerful aids in your obedience and your walk with him. I promise you. Just knowing who he, not the, not the false Jesus of false movements, not the false Jesus that's propagated all over the internet, the Jesus of scripture, the son of God who walks on water, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross in our place, was buried, and three days later rose again. And then 40 days later ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is making intercession for the people like you and people like me. You get a hold of that Jesus and you invite that Jesus into your context. You realize who he is. I am is here. And fear goes away. And listen to me. And when fear is gone, you can make good decisions. That sound a lot like, you ready for this? Obedience. Does that make any kind of sense today? Do you think these disciples needed to get this? Yeah, because the next day, the next day, a lot of people are going to walk away from Jesus. And his men are going to be tempted. But now they know who he is. We need to become a people who run to him for his help in our struggle to obey. That's all I want you to do today. Run to him and know who he is. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you ran to Christ in your struggle to obey? I don't know, but here's what I can tell you. I know the last time I ran away from him in my, in my hurry to disobey, well, that probably comes up quicker for some of us, doesn't it? And I just want to encourage you today, run towards him. We want to follow him, but we can't do it in our own power. But his power is enough. And as we look at the cross, we can know he's not only able, but listen, he is willing to come to our aid. And the cross shows us that. So let's cry out to him. Let's pursue the spiritual disciplines he has given us in prayer, scripture, meditation, and memorization, worship singing, community. Listen to this one, confession. All of these things, fellowship. These help us to tap into his power. And we need it. Because only with him will we be able to get to the other side. So here's what I want to say to you in closing today in our struggle to obey invite him in and listen for the I am when you invite him in you are inviting God into your life into your struggle and when that happens I promise you fear is going to go away and faith is going to replace it knowing who Jesus is is the best help you can get and learning to obey him. Not just what is commanded in scripture, the black and white, but the personal obedience. What should I do? Which decisions should I make? What direction should I go? Know who Jesus is. Bring him into that, invite him into your situation. And know, by knowing who he is, it will empower you to follow him in obedience. Does that make sense this morning? And I know some of us here today are struggling I know there's a, there's, there's a lot of hurt. I know it's a broken world. 
But I want you right now to invite Jesus into your situation. And I want you to confess who he is. He is I am. Listen. And he's here. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let me get my musicians to come. We're going to sing a response song. And I want you to respond. I don't, I don't even want you to sing. I want you to pray. I want you to invite King Jesus right now into your situation. I want you to know who he is. There might be some repenting that needs to take place. That's part of the power that comes with knowing the right Jesus. Amen? You do that. You let the Holy Spirit speak to you right now. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Thanking you for your faithfulness. Thanking you for your your kindness to us, that you, you give us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. You are never late. You are never early. You are always on time. And I thank you for this passage of Scripture in its narrative form that helps us understand and see that the disciples finally got their answer as to who Jesus was when Jesus himself said, I am. And Lord, may we know that Jesus today, and may we wisely invite him in the midst of our mess so that we can find help in our time of need. We thank you for who Jesus is in his name. Amen.